want to open it up. Any questions from... Nobody look. What's this over here? Cool. Um, any questions from last week? Or last, last week? It feels like last week. Yesterday? Did you guys do your homework? Of, of course, my cabin forgot to, but whatever. Famous last words, I was going to. Um, well, well, I hope yesterday was encouraging for you. Um, hopefully it was encouraging for you to see the full Trinitarian work in our life. How God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit are working inside of us, working for us to bring us into relationship with Him. Not only is He bringing our spiritual life and will one day bring our physical life to eternal life, but He's bringing our prayer life. He's resurrecting it by His power, which is good news for us because we need it. So today we are going to talk um, about the, the, the preface and the first three petitions of the Lord's Prayer. And it's really interesting, if, if you know your Bibles well, um, you'll know in the Decalogue, so the Ten Commandments, the first four commandments are directed towards God. And the last six commandments are towards God's people. That's why Jesus can sum up the law and say, love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, strength, and mind. And He said, love your neighbor as yourself. He's summing up those two tables of the law. We see a very similar thing in the Lord's Prayer. The first three petitions are petitions to God. And the last three petitions are petitions asking for God to help us. The whole prayer is for God to help us but they are directed towards our being and who we are. Um, so I didn't know how I would do this with this large of a group, but in my first class, um, we signed a petition. It says, let us swim today in the ocean, even if it's a double red flag. And the reason I had them sign this petition is, the, what are petitions? Petitions are people of a lower status asking people of a higher status to do something that they cannot do on their own. People sign petitions for their government, for their mayor. For whatever reason you might find someone to write a petition, we sign a petition because we want to swim in the ocean. It'll be up here later so you can sign it. But I will warn you, it is a fake petition. <laughs> it is not real. You cannot swim in the ocean if it's double red. But why I use this petition is in the petitions of the Lord's Prayer, this is exactly what we are doing. We are asking for a higher authority above us to help us do something that we cannot do on our own. We want to swim in the ocean. Someone has to give us permission to swim in the ocean. For us to pray, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, that cannot be done under our own power. This is what we looked at yesterday in Romans 8. 
We cannot pray to God under our own power, for we are too weak. Our prayers are insufficient. I do want to make one quick clarification. I compared, I thought about this last night and this morning, and I compared God to Aladdin and the genie. But the point of that comparison was to say that Aladdin needed something outside of himself to fix his poverty. In the same way, we need something outside of ourselves to fix our poverty in prayer. But something I wanted to clarify is God is not like a genie. We don't just pray for what we want, as Aladdin did, and asking his genie to make him a prince. But as we looked at yesterday, we pray that actually our wills, what we want, are aligned to God's will and what He wants, because that is our greatest good. Because God saves us from something, but God always saves us to something. He saves us from sin and death, but He saves us to walk in newness of life. A life united to Christ perfectly by the power of the Spirit. And we will see today that He actually asks us to do something with that life. So we're going to look at the first three petitions. But first we need to take a step back. I'm going to give you basically my first year of seminary education for free this morning. If any of you know anything about Covenant Seminary, you know that this is said by all the graduates from there in the past ten years. But first we're going to play a game. We're going to pray word association. So I'm going to say a word, and I want you all to say the first thing that comes to your mind. As long as it's appropriate. I always worry about saying that, because now you're thinking of all the inappropriate things you can say. And if I would have just left it alone, would you have thought about saying something inappropriate? But anyway, this is a freebie. R-Y. Jesus. Okay. LeBron. <laughs> Lady. <laughs> Peanut butter. <laughs> Pins and. <laughs> Iron. <laughs> Star. <laughs> Star shoes? Oh, I don't know what star shoes are. Lion. Lion King. So, I want to teach you something. I'm going to say context is, and I want all of you to say king. K-I-N-G. King. Context is. Context is. Context is. That's one full year of seminary education. Free. If you don't know the context of a passage, you can never know what that passage means. Context is king when you're reading your scripture. Last summer, I had two high school interns go through an internship, and we spent two and a half weeks reading theology, church history. And one of my favorite classes that we did was how to read your Bible good. Just joking. It was how to read your Bible well. But the point of the class was how to teach them to be good readers of the Bible. And I gave them seven principles. And the fourth principle was context is 
king. You cannot understand what the author is trying to say if you do not know the context of what he's trying to say. It. And I might be about to burst your bubble and take away your favorite verse in all of Scripture. But I want to show you a passage that is always taken out of context. And we use it to mean whatever we want it to mean. I want you to turn to Philippians 4. Philippians 4. It's before Revelation, after Genesis. It's after Philippians. It's before all the T's in the New Testament. If you're in Ephesians, you're close. Just go to the right. Philippians 4, verse 13. Philippians 4.13 I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. We usually hear this verse as I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Who's heard that verse before? Great. Philippians 4.13 Now imagine this. Paul is not talking about your next basketball game. Paul is not talking about your next soccer match or the next test that you're going to take or the weights you're about to lift above your head. Paul is not asking God to give him omnipotent strength to do whatever he desires to do. Paul is asking for God's strength to help him to be obedient to His Word and to serve those around him. We often take this passage out of context and say, God, give me strength to do X, Y, or Z. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. In the Great Commission, God promised, Jesus promises to be with us wherever we go. But Paul in Philippians 4.13 is not talking about an athletic event. Lots of people write this everywhere. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. But the context of Philippians 4.13 is that Paul is asking for strength from Christ to preach the Gospel. To serve those around Him. Because if He's left to His own power, He cannot do God's will. Now I'm really sorry if I just... If you have to like go home and like erase or mark something off of your shoe, a tattoo that you have, I'm really sorry. It's one of those sorry, not sorry type things. And I know this is true because in 2 Corinthians 12, you do not have to turn there. This is what Paul says. But he said to me, so Jesus said to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Is that a question or a stretch? God's power is made perfect in our weakness, not in our strength. We ask God to give us strength to do His will. 
not to make a free throw. Context is? Context is? So, turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, where we find the Lord's Prayer. If you're in Philippians, go left. Matthew chapter 6. And we're actually going to start off in chapter 5. So if context is king, we must ask the question, what is the context of Jesus giving His disciples this prayer? And I'll admit, the context in Luke's Gospel where He gives His his disciples a prayer is a little bit different. But we see very similar things of what's going on. Because we see that the Lord's Prayer is given to His disciples in the middle of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. So the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5 through 7, chapters 5 through 7. It is, it is three full chapters. And in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray. But this is how the Sermon on the Mount begins. Chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up to the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is teaching them, is preaching to them, about what it looks like to be holy. This is what God said to His people in Leviticus. Be holy, because I am holy. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 2 and and Ephesians 5. That we have been... um, What does Paul say in verse... Ephesians 1.4 Even as He chose us in Him before the foundations of the world, that you should be holy and blameless before Him. In chapter 5, He's talking about how Christ is making His bride, the church, holy before God. And then later, in Peter actually quotes Leviticus 11 and says, You shall be holy, for I am holy. God is calling His people to be holy. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, is teaching His people to be holy. But what we find in chapter 5 is that this list, called the Beatitudes, is a pretty daunting list. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who are meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Sounds pretty hard to me. Who does this sound like? Who in your life does this sound like? Sunday school answer? Jesus. Yesterday we learned that God's will for you is that you be conformed into the image of Christ. 
This sermon, like all other sermons, is telling us about Jesus. And it's interesting, we can look back through the law, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and we can see all these laws that God gave His people, and it can be pretty daunting for us, right? Like, we really have to help a dude get his ox out of the ditch, even if it's on the Sabbath, because we care for both the dude and his ox. But Jesus goes a step further than what the law asks us to do. It's interesting to notice that Jesus has actually just made the law harder to follow in Matthew chapter 5. Look at Matthew 5, verses 21 to 22. In speaking of the sixth commandment, Jesus says, You have heard it, that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus has just made the sixth commandment harder to follow. And then we can turn to verses... What next one do I have? Verse 28. Or let's go to 27. But you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. The seventh commandment. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus has just made the law harder. And here's the kicker. Turn to the last verse of chapter 5. Verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus has just made keeping the law of God impossible for us to keep. He's calling us to be holy. Do you want to know what holiness looks like? You must be perfect. For the Lord your God is perfect. You must not become angry. You must not look at your neighbor with lust. And what the disciples figure out pretty quickly, what we, as Jesus' disciples, figure out pretty quickly, is that what Jesus has just asked us to do is impossible for us to do on our own strength. We need help. And this is exactly where we find the Lord's Prayer. If we read Matthew chapter 5, going into chapter 6, we should all bend our knees and ask for God's help 
For we cannot do what He's asked us to do on our own. We need something outside of ourselves to help us fulfill the law of God. And what's so great about the Gospel is God never asks His people to do something without giving them the means to do it. And the means, the way that we keep this law is through faith in Christ. You see, Jesus asked His disciples to do something that they couldn't do. But He asked them to do something that He was doing. He was telling them what He has done for us. This is where we find the Lord's Prayer. He is calling us to be holy. He's describing Himself what every sermon should do. Should be describe us how we cannot fulfill the law's demands, but Christ has fulfilled them on our behalf. And what did I say yesterday? We are saved from something, but we are also saved to something. That's why David can now say, The law is a lamp unto our feet. Because once we have received the Holy Spirit, we have been made holy. We can now fulfill the law's demands because the Spirit lives inside of us. And we cannot do it perfectly. Not yet. But we're going to see in a minute, we're going to see small glimpses of what doing the will of God, fulfilling the law, being holy, actually looks like. Any questions? I don't know if any of you have heard that. I hope all of you have. Sometimes we just need a good reminder of that. I see lots of yawning, so I'll pick it up. So, yesterday we already looked at our privilege of calling God Father. And this is the beginning point of the prayer. Is that we get to call God our Father. Our. It's communal. It's important for us to remember when we're meeting as the people of God, we are not just praying this prayer, we are not just singing, we are not just doing all these things for our own benefit. We are doing these things also for the benefit of those next to us. We are praying this prayer to strengthen the faith of the person next to us. as We are also praying this prayer to strengthen our faith. Because there's going to be days in your life when you go to church Sunday morning to pray this prayer and you're not going to want to do it. I promise you will have those days. But I pray and I hope that on those days you'll look to your neighbor and they will be praying that prayer for you because you don't have the strength to do it that day. Because someday they're going to look to you and ask you to do the same for them. Whether it be a brother or sister, mom or dad, friend, neighbor, whomever it is, there will be days when you need someone to pray this prayer on your behalf. And this is how God will bring blessing into your life. How many of you like to wear jerseys? I was, I had meant to bring my, I think I've, brought it but I couldn't find it this morning because I woke up and my entire cabin was still asleep 
I was going to bring my LeBron James jersey. And as Miles says, I'm apparently a bandwagon fan. And I, um, I started following LeBron James when he was in high school. That is not a bandwagon fan. That's just a fan. We graduated high school the same year. Not Miles and I, but LeBron and I. But when you wear someone's jersey, you're, it's easy to identify somebody. So I'm looking around the room. There's lots of old Miss fans. They're the most obnoxious. Sorry. Where I live, we, every, where we live, everyone that's Alabama fan has just become an Alabama fan. But So it's pretty easy to identify people when they wear jerseys. I'm a LeBron fan. My, my kids, all three of them, eight, six, and three, if you ask them, who do you cheer for, they will say, we cheer for the Arkansas Razorbacks, we cheer for the St. Louis Cardinals, and we cheer for LeBron James. In that order, they will say that. All three of them. I have trained them well. When we pray our Father in Heaven, we are telling those around us and we are telling God Himself that we are wearing His jersey. We are on His team. Everywhere we go, we are bearing the representation of Him. Have any of you had your parents talk to you about the family name? Names aren't quite as important as they used to be. But in the good old days, in the good old days, parents would tell their children, you are representing the family name wherever you go. When we bear the name of our Father in heaven, we are wearing His jersey and aligning with His team wherever we go. The first petition, hallowed be thy name. What does hallowed mean? Does anyone know? Hallowed. hallowed. Not like halo. To make holy, absolutely right. To make holy, to glorify, to bring honor and majesty. I'm not talking about Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Sorry. To give glory. And this is what we see over and over and over again in the Psalms. David sings, May praise and honor be given to your name. Let me ask you this. What is the thing in your life that you bring the most glory to? What do you hallow in your life? Two things pop to mind pretty quickly for me. Sports, cell phones. Bunch of other stuff. Self-autonomy, meaning what I can do for myself. Video games. There are a lot of things in this life that, yeah, boys, money, girls, yeah, tennis shoes. There's a bunch of things that we can hollow. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right. Everyone got to say what they wanted to say. Hey, stop. These are this is my group, so I can 
But we see the first petition. We're asking God, help us hallow your name because we cannot do it on our own. May we as your people bring glory to your name everywhere we go. I hate to use a sports analogy after I just talked about us hallowing it. But in, 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 in team sports, there's different type of role players. And then there's, and I'm sorry, I'm a basketball fan. This will be the last sports analogy. This will be the last sports analogy. There's usually like a star player or the best player in basketball. We see this in the NBA. It's the greatest league in the world. There's usually role players and there's a star player. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, we are saying, Hallowed be thy name. We are identifying our star player. And we are submitting ourselves to be role players. And it's our privilege to be on God's team. And we get to tell everybody about the glory that is due to His name. But it's not natural for us to honor His name. It's very hard for us. Ever since the garden, there's only one name that each of us want to hallow. And that's our own. I'm a preacher, and I struggle with this. Because I want to be recognized for the hard work that I've done, rather than saying, may God receive all the glory. You see, Jesus is teaching His disciples, when you pray, you're asking God to help you honor and bring glory to His name in everything that you do. When we first moved to Memphis, we were coming from Arkansas, and the first thing, one of the first things besides the, the bridge crossing the Mississippi that you see is this huge pyramid that they've turned into a Bass Pro Shop, which seems very odd to me, but it's the biggest Bass Pro Shop in the world. Yay, you won, you bought a pyramid. But things that are big are evidently big on themselves. One time I was driving through Iowa and I saw the sign for the world's largest wooden chair. <laughs> I don't know what they're doing in Iowa, but they had a lot of time to make this wooden chair. Things that are large are self-evident that they're large. God is self-evident in His largeness, but our sin blinds us to seeing it. We want to make ourselves large, and we want to make God small. We want to treat God like a vending machine and say, I'm going to put some money in, and I want you to give me what I want. Rather than we come before God learning how to make His name holy, how to give His name praise. The second petition, Thy kingdom come. 
So my church, we've been preaching and going through the, the Gospel of Luke for right about three years now. Um, we're almost finished. It's been a great study. But it's been really funny. Um, our senior minister preaches more often than I do. I preach about once a month. But it's, it's been really funny to see almost every single time that I come up and preach, I'm preaching about the kingdom of God. It's, it's, I, I have said from our pulpit, neither him nor I are smart enough to actually align it to where when I preach, the passage is going to be concerning the kingdom of God. But almost every single week, that's true. And what I've noticed in the kingdom of God, with the theme of the kingdom of God, is that, and what most biblical scholars and theologians will say is, this is the most important topic that Jesus talks about in his earthly ministry. So if you write anything down, write that down. The most important thing that Jesus talked about in his earthly ministry was the kingdom of God. In Luke 4.43, this is what he says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. When we talk about the kingdom of God, it's a really big deal. But, as I want you to see, turn to Luke chapter 9. I think this is a wonderful picture of the kingdom of God, even though the kingdom of God is never referenced. Actually, I take that back. It is referenced. I was thinking about the verse before it. So Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. So Jesus, when He comes on the scene in chapter 4, says, I have come to preach the kingdom of God. This is the purpose for My coming. And in chapter 9, we see that Jesus is sending out the twelve apostles. And this is what He says to them. He called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And He said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay here, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. You see, when Jesus came, He not only preached the gospel, preached the kingdom, but He sent His disciples out to preach the gospel and to preach the kingdom. What one author says about the kingdom of God is, you know, when when we talk about the kingdom of God, especially in the Lord's Prayer, it's really interesting that earth and heaven 
are very often conjoined in Scripture. Genesis 1.1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And we have to ask ourselves, what, what is heaven? Where, where is heaven? Have you ever thought about that question? If you haven't, you are now, hopefully. And this is what one author says about heaven. Heaven and earth are two interlocking arenas of God's good world. Heaven is God's space where He is obeyed perfectly. Where His will is followed perfectly. Where His presence is and those who are in His presence do not need mediation. Earth, this writer continues, is our world. And it's our space. Yet, this prayer tells us to pray that God's space invades our space. You see, on earth right now, the will of God is not done perfectly. The law is not obeyed perfectly. But when the kingdom will come, as it says in the end of Revelation, God's city comes to our city. What we see the disciples doing is going and proclaiming the kingdom of God. These these healings from diseases, the sending out of demons, these are things giving us a glimpse of what the kingdom of God will look like when it comes in its fullness. This is what comes with the preaching of the Gospel. We become kingdom agents. Jesus was our King. We go through this world preaching the Gospel of the Kingdom, that the King has come. And, as I said earlier, context is... So I read the extra special version of the Bible. The ESV Bible. I'm just joking. It's not really the extra special version. But it gives it gives heading to little chapters and paragraphs. A big thing we need to understand when we talk about the kingdom of God is something that Jesus very often spoke about with authority. A huge question that you guys will have to answer in your life at some point. Who has authority over you? What our culture tells you is that you have your authority over you, and you alone. Unfortunately, that's not what the Scriptures teach. As Jesus was telling His disciples in the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. And so, this idea of the kingdom of God is an authority issue. Who has the authority to rule? Here's the context of Luke chapter 9. If we look back at chapter 8, what has Jesus just done? Jesus has just healed a woman and Jairus' daughter. Jesus is showing His authority. What's before that? Jesus heals a man with a demon. Jesus is showing the authority of the King. What happens right before that? Jesus calms the storm. 
Jesus is showing His authority to control nature. And then there's good news. Jesus is sharing that power. Unlike any supervillain you've ever seen who wants to control and power by themselves, Jesus starts giving this power to His disciples to bring forth the kingdom. Because the kingdom is wherever God's will is done perfectly. Where God is obeyed perfectly. And what's really hard is that the kingdom of here, but it's not complete yet. Because we can and do obey God's will. But we don't do it perfectly. But as we pray the Lord's Prayer, we're asking God to help us be kingdom agents. We're asking God to help us see that the kingdom is a big deal. Because where Jesus is king, there his kingdom is, and his people are found. Thy will be done. The third petition. Have any of you driven a car before? Some of you. What about a go-kart, four-wheeler, a boat, something? Something. Great. So if you've driven something, you, you maybe you don't know what this is called, but if you're ever driving something and you let go of the wheel and the, the, the car starts to veer off left to right, that means your wheels are out of alignment. That means your dad or your mom has hit the curb too many times as they're pulling out of the parking lot of Walmart or wherever they go. Your wheels need realigned because the car, if it's operating properly, you should be able to let go and it should still move forward in a straight line. Yesterday we learned that we cannot pray the will of God on our own. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. When we come to the third petition of the Lord's Prayer, Thy will be done. We are asking God by the power of His Spirit to help align our lives with Him. Because each week, we start forgetting the will of God and we start to veer off. And the power of this prayer is that it it realigns us. We are saying we are your kingdom agents. We are your children. We want to be aligned with your will. Please help realign us. And I want to say something really cliche and say something like, you're not driving, God is driving for you and He will pull you align. There are certain things about that that are true. But as, I always, as, as I've said, the Lord always saves us from something and to something. He actually asks us to drive the car of our lives, but He says you will need help doing it. You will need help realigning your car. And as I said earlier, that is why it's so important 
for you to be at youth group on Wednesday night or Sunday night or whatever night that you meet. Why it's so important to you to be in the people of God each week because there are going to be days you don't want to take your car to get it realigned. But as I tell my students, it seems like every Saturday night I'm veering off the road. And I can't wait for Sunday morning to where the Spirit by God's people can start helping me strengthen my faith and realign to God's will, which is for each of you. Look at me, all of you. God's will for you, for each of you, is to become more like Christ. You cannot do that on your own. You need the work of the Spirit inside of you. And guess what? That's exactly what He's doing. You are His kingdom agents. He has called you to align your wills with Him. He has called you to recognize that He is the Father of all creation. That His name is the most powerful and important name in the universe. And that's why this prayer is dangerous. Because it looks to something else other than yourselves. And any time I ask any student or any person to do something for God other than for themselves, it becomes dangerous for us because we might lose something. But as I said yesterday, it's for your greater good. Because God wants what's good for His children because He loves you. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Bless us as we go from this place. Be with us. Sustain us. Lord, may we come before You on our knees because we know that we cannot do what You command of us as Your children. But we come on our knees to ask for help so that we can be sent off into Your world so others can know You as Father and as King. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen. Guys, have a safe, safe free day.